Welcome back. This is Sheep Stuff You Should Know. I'm Dr. Rosie Bush, and today I'm joined with a very special guest. We have Dr. Sarah Place, and you are in Colorado with AgNext at CSU, right? Yeah, yep. So I'm an associate professor in animal sciences, uh, really focused on beef cattle feedlot systems, but cross over into different topic areas. Um, but yeah, also affiliated with AgNext, which is a group that's solely focused on sustainability in animal agriculture. Okay. And AgNext is relatively new, isn't it? It's about a year old, two years old? Yeah, it's it's very new. Um, basically, until August, there was only the director, Dr. Kim Sackhouse-Lawson, who's a Davis grad, and uh, communication staff, uh, J.R. Rieskamp, that were the only two. Uh, people that actually worked at Agnext. And so since then, I believe there's been about seven faculty members, of which I'm one of, that have started since August of 2022. Um, So we're across the board from everything from animal sciences and focusing on methane emissions like I am to folks that are actually ag economists and focused on this from the economic side of things. Very cool, which is very important. Um, And is it is Agnex specifically focused on beef cattle or is it just kind of there at the time or how does that? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. So we are focused on all animal agriculture, but yes, right now, as we're just getting started, there's a big focus on cattle in general. So mainly beef, but also dairy. Dairy. Uh, And partially that's just because of the the industry in Colorado. We've had some students do some sheep work as well, just because um, obviously there's uh, some sheep feeders in this uh, part of the world as well in Colorado. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, so I jumped right into Agnex, but would you do us a huge favor and introduce yourself, give us a little bit of background and kind of how you ended up with Agnex? Yeah, yeah. So as I mentioned, I've been with uh, Colorado State and Agnex since uh, August of 22. But before that, I was actually with Alenco Animal Health for a couple of years. So I was the chief sustainability officer for Alenco Animal Health and so focused on um, helping customers of Alenco, developing some tools for carbon footprinting for customers, uh, mainly in the U.S. cattle feeding industry, but across the board. Cool. And then before that was actually at National Cattlemen's Beef Association for a few years. So I ran the checkoff funded uh, sustainability research program there, um, which included um, you know, getting the life cycle assessment of U.S. beef completed. And then um, prior to that, was in academia beforehand. So I was I was four years at Oklahoma State University as an assistant professor in sustainable beef cattle systems. Um, did a lot of work on measuring methane there too, uh, developing a, a couple different methodologies to do that. And then um, prior to that, I actually did my PhD at UC Davis. So I spent four years at, in Davis and uh, originally from the East Coast, from the Northeastern US, from a upstate New York dairy farm. So um, got a lot of cattle Very backgrounds, historically cool. uh, more on the dairy side. And then uh, over the last decade or so, I've, I've gone over to the beef side of things, which is uh, which is always funny when people think of me as a beef person, because at the end of the day, I'm away from a dairy farm. Yeah. yeah, that's very cool. And dairy has a lot to do with beef as well. So <laughs> all, all cattle are beef cattle. Some cattle yes. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Very cool. I love, you know, we have a lot of dairy cow, as you know, in Mm -hmm. California, and I've been to a couple of BQA meetings before my Mm -hmm. current position. And we had a lot of dairymen at those meetings where, you know, really, it's great that they have that in their mindset. And they're, you know, we're Mm -hmm. considering the entire life cycle, which is cool. Exactly. Um, So you've done a 
your whole career is in sustainability, which is amazing. And it's so interesting to me that it seems like every commodity has, you know, has to come up with the definition. <laughs> and I, it's curious to me why we think it's different depending on each commodity. And I can see why in some cases, but I'm curious, what is your definition of sustainability? Yeah. Great question. I think at the end of the day, it, it comes down to three mo- main domains, right? And that's how we think about it at next too, is there's the economic piece. So we have to be economically viable. We have to have environmental stewardship and we have to have that social responsibility component. So for, um, for ag next, we're thinking about it from the standpoint of got to be profitable for producers. Things have to scale. They have to make business sense. We got to have that environmental stewardship focus. And of course, a lot of it in today's conversation comes down to climate change. And that's why we focus so much on that thing today. Yeah. Uh, and then that social piece, which is sometimes harder, right? But it's everything from the health and welfare of animals to thinking about, you know, we're doing all this to feed people. And we're doing this, obviously, also to support rural communities and the vibrancy of rural communities, right? So all those different things fall into sustainability. But the simplest way it is to put it is it's about all three of those pillars, economic, social, environmental, and it's about a long-term focus, right? Trying to get better all the time. Um, and that continuous improvement mindset, that's really what sustainability is about. That's a pretty broad definition, and that's where you can get many variations of that. But even with looking at like the USDA definition of sustainable agriculture, it encompasses those three things in a long-term focus. Okay. I was talking with a student yesterday. I was driving for a research project with a couple of students and it was interesting because she was, you know, as far as marketing goes, organic and natural, and those are the things that you see out there. And it's interesting that even sustainability seems to be a bit of a buzzword that some producers have a hard time you know, like it's a bit triggering. We don't love hearing that word because it gets thrown around as a buzzword. But it seems like sustainability, it it kind of, it's not cut, it's not black and white, I guess. Like there, it's not like, oh, organic is obviously sustainable, you know, like it's, it seems like that it kind of goes across all systems and yeah. I don't yeah. Know. yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's exactly correct. Right. And as we sit here in Colorado, we've done research with folks that are organic producers or conventional producers, and that's 100% right. It doesn't matter what kind of um, marketing focus people have, right? If they're a grass-fed producer or traditional, right, grain-finished producer, at the end of the day, it's just about trying to get better where you're at, right? right? And that's that's what makes it difficult to define because what is better or what is maintaining what's already good on your operation looks very different depending on where you are, what the resources you have, you know, the hand you're being dealt from Mother Nature, right? So, um I think that's that's the thing. I'm totally understandable why sometimes producers or other folks in, in the industry or even sometimes consumers can be skeptical about, about the word and worry about greenwashing, those type of things. But yeah. at the end of the day, we try to say, let's focus on the outcomes we want to change, right? Which comes back to, can we reduce environmental impacts where possible, maintain good ecosystem services where we have them, right? Make sure that we're profitable, that the business can be passed on in the next generation and keep supporting right? Rural, rural economies or have them grow in new ways, right? With diversified operations, right? So th- those type of things are the outcomes that we can hopefully actually agree upon, even though there's sometimes this contention around terminology, right? And people yeah. using different terms. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it seems like, you know, when we're 
it's just like you said, like, where are we at now and how can we get better? And so there, there's got to be some sort of measure to that, but that's where it gets so complicated. That's where, where yeah. I get a little bit skeptical because I'm like, ah, there's no way we can capture all of this, but still like, you know, with everything you have to pick one area to try to measure so that you can track progress. So what is that? You kind of mentioned it, but what would that be for? I mean, I guess sustainability, like you said, it's so broad, but your focus is on methane. So yeah, yeah, so exactly. So we could talk about all sorts of different aspects, but one is you mentioned the right uh, key phrase, right? You can't manage what you don't measure, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But that's always the risk with sustainability. As soon as you start measuring one thing, then it's easy for the other stuff. It's also important that you don't have a good measure for it to maybe fall by the wayside. Um, So it's always a dual-edged sword, but for sure, we had to be able to measure things and and people inherently know and understand that from the standpoint of running their own business, right? Whether it's financial measures that they're they're tracking, right? Um, Their financial statements or on the environmental side. And what we're really focused on here with research is methane, which is not easy to measure on a commercial operation, right? From individual women and animals. Um, But that's a big part of what we're focused on. Here, as I said, at this research facility today, um, we have the capability with beef cattle to measure in a feedlot pen environment, approximately 180 animals at once in terms of their individual methane emissions, their individual feed intake, get body weight gain data. And that gives us more confidence that, hey, we can test things in a manner that is more commercially relevant because the animals are housed in a pen environment like they would be in any sort of cattle feeding operation. And give us the scale with that number of animals to be measured at once that we can start testing some of these solutions um, and really knowing and understanding what the impacts are. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's really exciting from our standpoint is the ability to do that research here at CSU AgMax is is really helpful because, again, commercial operations are probably never going to have these machines that we have to actually measure these emissions. But what can we do to do that work to give them confidence in um, different solutions that are out there, people making claims about things, new novel technologies, and making um, methane emission prediction models better. So if you're in a commercial operation, if you know your group's, your pen's uh, feed intake and a couple other measures, maybe you can predict methane with increased confidence. You don't have to measure it. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder... I guess I've I've seen a little bit of the data that compares, you know, whether they're totally forage based or with grain fed and how that impacts their methane production. Are there any studies looking at things like, um, I guess, you know, like grass versus forbs or even into the brush Mm. species? Because a lot of our small ruminants are, you know, grazing all these different types of plants that have condensed tannins and different secondary compounds that from the little bit that I know may actually impact methane production, but. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So starting with that, that kind of higher level, we know in general, the more fiber, the more NDF we have in a diet for a ruminant animal, they tend to make more methane. And so cattle that are like in a feedlot environment where they're eating a more grain-based diet, lower fiber diet, they tend to make even sometimes half the methane as compared to a grazing bovine, for example. But to your point, yes, um, tannins are something that we know can have an impact on uh, methane emissions, right, in terms of mitigating those methane emissions. And any of those secondary um, 
plant compounds, right, that may be in more of those forbs that, you know, sheep and goats are exposed to when they're grazing in more arid rangeland environments, very well could have a methane inhibiting effect. Um, which kind of brings us one to the challenge of measuring methane emissions in grazing environments, right? Yeah, yeah. As you can imagine, so most of these methane emissions are coming out the front end of the animal. It's very difficult to measure in those those environments where those animals are probably exposed to those different plant species and consuming them, browsing them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's where the the machines that we use these uh, green feed machines from a company called Sealock from South Dakota, there are grazing units that we have as well. And we have some of those um, out on range right now. So more extensive environments and using them for cattle, but they have ones for small ruminants too. And I think that's a huge area of interesting research that can be done is, you know, these animals that are consuming these wide array of, of uh, plant species, what is their methane emissions, right? Yeah. What we assume may not be correct. And it really is a field of science that because there's so little data, basically anything we can do to measure those emissions is hugely beneficial from a standpoint of adding to the body of knowledge. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's so, yeah, it's interesting because when we look at the carbon footprint of sheep, it was really surprising to me that it didn't look all the, you know it didn't look one that much different from cattle whereas I expected it to be maybe a little bit better because we have twins or multiple lambs yeah. but they are so much smaller but mm-hmm. it was yeah I just I don't know I feel like we're lacking information there but yeah yeah so of course a lot of times where we do carbon footprint research and we think about like again what we do at Agnax we have um, a Dr. Greg Tomans a world-class life cycle assessment modeler he's one of those folks that can help us do carbon footprint analyses but when he's doing this work, you know, he'll always say in silico, right? On yeah. a computer. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's at the mercy of how good models are for predicting these things, right? So if yeah. we don't have good emissions prediction equations for sheep, and especially in those kind of environments, right? Like especially parts of California where those animals are consuming those type of forages, you know, we're probably making a very crude assumption of, well, based on the body weight of the animal, how much we assume it's eating. And uh, we're going to say, you know, of the gross energy an animal, this animal eats six and a half, seven percent is lost as methane. That's it. That's about as sophisticated as it gets, right? Yeah. So that's part of that challenge is until we get better data, our models are pretty crude and not really able to capture what may be in reality, right? Different emissions depending on different diet types. Yeah. Interesting. And I'm just curious, who is it USDA that is funding a lot of that kind of data capture for like you said, with your grazing systems that are out there or what kind of funding gets those types? Here I am, my brain is rolling. Like, how can we get yeah. these studies to happen? Yeah, there's actually, unfortunately, there's not a lot of federal funding on this topic area. And I think that's one of those big um, challenges that we have is there's so much societal interest, of course, in right. mitigating right. methane emissions and all things climate change. But there's very little federal funding when it comes to mitigating and measuring enteric methane emissions. So, for example, there's uh, a grant call that's open now for sustainable agricultural systems through NIFA, USDA NIFA, right? National Institute of Food and Agriculture. Um, and there's in that call, there's one enteric methane emission grant that will be given, right? Across the entire uh, United States. So cool. <laughs> yeah, like that's great. If you can get it, awesome. But also it's like, ah, there's so much work to be done, right? So a lot of this work ends up getting funded by 
you know, and at times different associations, um, different foundations, or of course, private companies that maybe have um, products or solutions, you know, companies that sell condensed tannins, companies that sell different feed additives okay. that sponsor research to try to get this done. Um, with Agnext, we've been really lucky, like this equipment that's pretty expensive. A lot of it has been donated by people in the cattle livestock industry in Colorado. It's, it's a huge question. And they actually stepped up and said, we need to know this stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they do, donated over $1.3 million of equipment to get wow. us started. That's amazing. Yeah. So that's <laughs> that's very helpful. But that's the type of level of investment that's required from an infrastructure approach to start answering some of these questions. Cool. Um, hmm. I'm, that's amazing. I, I, it just like from that aspect of really, you know, needing something tangible to measure, I'm always curious how the rest of production kind of fits into these equations. And I, that goes more, I guess, into the life cycle assessment, mm -hmm. um, but how does that get considered? So now we've, you know, we've got a pretty good idea for some species what their emissions are, but how do we consider, you know, you know, they only spend so many months in the feedlot, the rest of their time is out in grazing. How does that come together for kind of making yeah. this whole conversation? Yeah. yeah, so exactly. So life cycle assessment is a key tool there to look at these type of systems and those those type of assessments can be combined with other systems modeling techniques to answer some of these questions, right? So um, that's where, yeah, agriculture is very complex because it's all connected, right? And that's always yeah. some of the conversation of plant versus animal agriculture. Well, of course, they're very they connected. don't live, yeah, yeah, they're not exclusive. <laughs> yeah, they're not exclusive at all, right? So that's where, for example, when we look at like the life cycle assessment of U.S. beef. Yes, we have to account for the feedlot. We have to account for stalker cattle, backgrounding for cow-calf operations, and all the inputs that go into all those phases. So everything from, you know, the four-wheelers that are being used on a ranch, right, to the impact of producing fertilizer that may grow corn that is fed to cattle in a feed yard, right? All those different aspects have to be accounted for in a really comprehensive life cycle assessment. So, for example, like the way it was done for the U.S. beef industry was a series of surveys that were conducted across the United States in different regions where feed yards, stocker operations, cow-calf operations were surveyed for their production practices, how many animals, body size, breed type, all those type of things, because that's important going into, again, producing what the animals are going to eat, how much methane they're going to produce, etc., um, and thinking about all those inputs along the way, right? So um, it can vary a lot across regions. And sometimes some of those things actually vary more within regions, right? Just different production systems that people have. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's that's how it, it's really complicated really fast when you try to account for everything that goes into producing beef or uh, lamb or whatever commodity we're talking about, or of course on the cropping side too. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. When we, um, Dr. Earhart and his, um, PhD students or, uh, they were looking at the life cycle for sheep and some of their conclusions for 
kind of improving sustainability or reducing methane emissions was, you know, having more lambs per ewe and then increasing the longevity of the ewe. And for me, being a vet, I was like, great, those are things I can help focus on. Um, but it seems like, you know, as far as methane mitigation, it's, it's, it seems, I don't know, like we're not in feed yards necessarily where we can give feed additives to yes. mitigate methane. And, you know, and it's interesting, but in Australia, it seems like they have done quite a bit of work on improving feed efficiency for animals. How does that affect methane emissions? Or Yeah. Yeah. So your, your comments there are really good because at at the end of the day, there's all these systems improvements we can make that are quite frankly just squarely in uh, the domain of animal husbandry, right? That actually really matter for environmental impacts and for carbon footprint. And that's one that's super encouraging because that's always, again, something that we try to focus on is where are the win-win solutions, right? Things right, that will right. actually improve profitability and reduce environmental impact at the same time. And so typically anything that improves animal efficiency of the system, whether it is feed efficiency overall of the whole system, whether we're selecting animals for feed efficiency, or quite frankly, doing things like increasing lambs per you also improves feed efficiency, right? From a standpoint right. of the whole, the whole system, right? So um, those aspects are incredibly important. Back to your question about like individual animal feed efficiency, um, the literature there is actually surprisingly more mixed than you would think in terms of you would assume animals are more feed efficient, make less methane. That relationship isn't always necessarily that straightforward. Oh, um, but, there are, but there are other benefits of feed efficiency, right? If we think about just reducing total uh, feed maintenance requirements for an entire flock or bird, right? That has a huge, huge impact. Um, but there has also been work in Australia and New Zealand on just methane emissions from sheep and the actual heritability of methane emissions themselves, right? Or um, almost like a residual feed intake index, but residual methane, right? Um, animals that emit less than you would expect based on what they weigh and how much they eat. Um, and we see that too with the research that we're doing um, here at Colorado State is, you know, we feed animals that are pretty similar in body weight, pretty similar animal type. They're eating the exact same diet, widely different methane emissions, right? Wow, so interesting. If you're uh if you're an animal nutritionist, you look at that data and you say, oh my God. But if you're a geneticist, right, you're thinking, oh great, right? This means that there is probably individual animal uh variation that we can exploit via breeding. Right. Yeah, so okay. um that's I think some of the exciting research that we can do um for all the ruminant industries. But a key part of that is we need to collect enough methane emission phenotype data to get to that point where we can build good selection uh, criteria. And that's that comes back to the earlier discussion of how much it costs to do this research and everything else. Yeah. Um because yep. uh you know that's we probably need realistically you probably need 800 to a thousand head in a database of phenotype data before you're gonna get to a point of building a good uh a good breeding tool, right? A good uh, genomics-led type of uh, selection criteria. Interesting. So it'd be something where, I, yeah, that'd be really interesting if we identified a region of genes or something like that that you could select for on a genetic and ideally, test. Yeah, and ideally you put it into another production index, right? So maybe 
you know, within the sheep industry, it's a whole host of economically relevant traits um, that are in an index and methane is just one part of them, right? And you just put that pressure on reducing methane over the course of several generations. Yeah. The beauty of that approach is you don't have to deliver a feed additive. You don't have to do all these things. You just actually shift the entire population of animals to a lower methane emitting um, group of animals, right? So I think that's the exciting part about genetics. It may not be you know, a 50% reduction is probably going to be more on the order of a 10 or 15% reduction that's possible. Um, but if you can do that for the entire herd, that's a lot of methane mitigation, right? That you I can feel like effects. that would be challenging for, I don't know, I'm just thinking here, but it'd be challenging for commercial because they don't know where they're at. It's not easy to measure like weaning weights or things like that, you know, like to move that bar, you kind of have to know where you are, where you're starting to select those sires, right? To improve that or, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's where, I think that's where the genomics component of it will be very important, oh, right? Sure. To understand those markers, absolutely. Because yes, uh, <laughs> that's the difficulty with the emissions piece. It's not something you can readily measure. Um, you know, methane is an odorless, colorless gas. Yeah. How the heck yeah. are you supposed to measure it, right? If you don't have the, the equipment. Um, but I think that's where, especially on the cattle industry side, right? It makes sense if it can be built into some of the breed associations uh, criteria and and, uh, and so people don't necessarily have to measure it, but it's based on genotypes. Interesting. Um, another, so speaking, like an, another way, I guess, of thinking of methane mitigation is we talk about all the time how now we're integrating sheep into different systems like orchards or vineyards and you know, they're not, they don't have as much carbon emissions from using, you know, fossil fuel tractors and things like that. But we don't really know exactly what that difference is, I guess, or maybe we do. But, and then who gets that credit? I think the vineyards and orchards usually get it because they're paying for these ecosystem services. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Is that pretty well like defined as far as the benefits there or not quite yet? Yeah, I think any of those integration questions are difficult, right? Because even as our earlier discussion about life cycle assessments, usually we look at those things as like snapshots in time and the interactions between different systems um, are are harder to quantify, right? So whether it's integration of like row crops with ruminants or like a vineyard or orchard situation um, or multi-species, right? Um, grazing operations. I think that's where coming back to those other aspects of sustainability, even beyond the carbon footprint, right? But thinking about the resiliency of the system, the ability for it to deal with um, different climate situations and the flexibility that's built into those types of systems is really important. And to your point of using a ruminant as, you know, right, an ecosystem engineer, right? a way for us to um, provide some of these services without having to say drive a tractor down between the rows of of the grapes, right? It's really, really um, important. So I don't know if I've ever seen any assessments of that, like from a carbon footprint standpoint, that would be a good research question if it hasn't been done, right? Um, But a great example of, again, that integration and that things are not either or, right? Um, and there's so many benefits of using ruminants in those ways that I think sometimes get glossed over. If we only focus on a carbon footprint, right, then we're we're missing that bigger picture. Yeah, absolutely. 
That's cool. Yeah. It's interesting when we had, we've, I think the last two American sheep industry meetings we've had, uh, you know, um, Kim, Dr. Stackhouse Lawson was there this year. Dr. Mittliner was there last year. There's a lot of questions about how wool production plays into this and that that mm-hmm. kind of, you know, adds impact to this carbon footprint story or sustainability. And then, you know, we have fiber shed here and mm-hmm. they are really interested in wool production because there's so much carbon that goes into the production of kind of, um, synthetic fibers and things like that and so it's like there's two total they seem like different stories but like you say they they're just everything's so intertwined yeah 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 i think that's you know whether we're talking about wool leather right those uh cotton right they're photosynthetic fibers if you will more recent photosynthetic carbon than all the petroleum-based products that so many of us wear nowadays right um whether it's nylon or whatever type of material um, and so I think that is always a huge, maybe under told story, right? Yeah, From the standpoint yeah. of these natural fibers, um, the role they can play in that dual purpose use of these animals and all the multiple products they're making, right? And that that's right. The beauty of sheep is you can have dairy products, you can have meats, you can have fiber, right? There's so much that's coming just from one animal in one system. Um, yeah, that, exactly. It's hard for us to better account for them. And account for the fact that, again, greenhouse gas emissions is important, but in a lot of these systems and arid rangelands, right, the ruminant is the only way that we're going to actually produce these multiple products for human use. Um, So just maintaining those systems is so important in terms of livelihoods of people and actually generating those human useful products off the landscape. Yeah. Yeah. A landscape that has, you know, if neglected has pretty severe consequences and has shown us that recently. Yes, but, that yeah. uh, can release a lot of carbon on its own, right? So yeah. that, that's always that's always uh, I think one way to think about it too is like you can you can oxidize the biomass like through a ruminant very slowly in a controlled way or you can rapidly oxidize it, right? And that's not good. Uh, yeah. And so that's that's one of those big challenges. I know um that data is public and on, on the California Air Resources Board website, right? But the amount of CO2 that's come from wildfires the last few years is incredibly huge, right? In a couple of years, it's actually surpassed the entire like U.S. dairy cattle uh, production footprint, right? In terms of total emissions. So thinking about it again in a systems lens rather than just, oh, I saw a bar chart on the internet of these are the different impacts of foods, right? That you know, that's useful, but it's such a, it's such a narrow way to look at this. Um, and unfortunately that's kind of the way a lot of these conversations have gone in recent years. Yeah. Well, hopefully we can get them to kind of circle back because yeah. like you said, even vegetables and I mean, just the byproducts that ruminants use and the food waste that they're able to, you know, make use of, it's not mm-hmm. rotting in a, on a field or yeah. in a landfill. It's, you know, there's methane that is emitted from that type of waste. So exactly, exactly, yeah. So that's ultimately the the reality, right? It's like the more we can integrate these systems, and the more we can basically have a a circular system of the energy and the nutrients that are flowing through agriculture, 
um, and making sure we don't have over concentration of those nutrients in certain areas, the better we are, right? And that's where livestock has a mobile tool to help move those nutrients to new places and to put them where we need them and to remove biomass where we need it removed is incredibly helpful, right? And that's just a different way of thinking about this. But, um, you know, again, that's where making sure we have that holistic lens and thinking about all three aspects of sustainability is so, so important. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, this has been amazing. You're (laughs) so incredibly knowledgeable and just a great way of explaining things. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Thanks. Um, Is there anything else you wanted to add or kind of close the conversation with? Yeah. Yeah. I just say, I hope, um, I hope we can, we can share more of what we're learning here at Agnax. And like I mentioned, right, the, the variability of the methane emissions and stuff, I hope is something that we'll be able to share publications on in the coming years of just really interesting findings. And we're also hoping at some point we can get a small ruminant uh, green feed machine so we can start answering some of these questions about um, methane emissions from from small ruminants too. So I imagine you could add it to a ram test and it would, you know, you get all those rams in there for those ram tests. If you just add a sea lock feeder in there, start gathering that data. Exactly. It would be really cool. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Place. It's been such a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. All right. Well, this has been Sheep Stuff You Should Know. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time.